0: let's go ahead, we'll get started. Before I get started, any questions from the homework? That you're just like, that made no sense. Uh, there was one question. Um, my friend Joan emailed me. And please, don't hesitate to email me your questions. And it was a question about um, what invitation was offered at Sinai, something. Anyway, that was a bad question. It used to have a paragraph with it that like explained what I was getting at. And I, that paragraph was just like, it was too extra. It was just me being in my head and thinking something was cool that nobody else would think is cool. So I deleted that paragraph, but I forgot to delete the question. So um, again, that's why I'm thankful for these. When you guys bring things up, when a question is just not, sometimes I just write a bad question. And so I welcome that kind of input. Um, It's really helpful because I'm going to be making another edition of this book for my podcast audience. So I want it to be better. So if something is just bad, I want to know. (laughs) Remember, everything makes sense in my head. All right? doesn't mean it's a good question. So anything before I pray and we get into this? All right. I just want to remind you. Um, The reason this study is so challenging is because everything is so new. Learning new things. Anybody who's trained for a new job is the absolute worst because no one likes feeling inept at something. (laughs) We all like to feel like we know what we're doing, and so we're learning new things. That is why it feels hard. We've also been in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is just harder. It just is. That's the way it is. We're, again, we're reading an ancient text. Um, Wasn't written yesterday. It was written a really long time ago. Um, This coming week, you're in mostly in the book of Isaiah. Um, You're in the Old Testament prophets. So not only is it ancient Hebrew, it's ancient Hebrew poetry. All right, so give yourself a break. And I tried to tell you this in there, like, if you only get through the reading, that's fine. Like, enjoy. These are beautiful, beautiful new creation passages. Try to enjoy them. Don't get so caught up in, I got to get the questions done and I got to get the answers right. It's hard because it's hard. Like this is, the Bible is hard, okay? If you're going to study it at at this level, it's just, it's challenging. And um, I know that can be discouraging or we can reframe it and it can be like really fun to learn something new. So let's do the reframe. (laughs) Easy for me to say because I'm a total nerd, right? I like this. Um, Not everybody's like that, and that's cool. That's awesome. Um, Boy, this would be a really terrible church if everyone were me, all right? So we need need us all. With that said, let me open in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for these women who are willing to um, savor the struggle with me and walk through uh, your word, literally through the whole thing, sort of in a way, uh, tracing these themes that are going to lead us to uh, a better understanding of heaven and what awaits us after death um, and in the new heaven and the new earth. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, today walk through, your word, looking at this theme of temple, um, is something, again, that's kind of foreign to us. We don't have temples like the uh, people who, who lived in the Bible times had. And so we're having to, once again, um, take off our modern um, backpack and put on uh, a different backpack and try to be a good tourist of these passages. And I just pray that through your spirit, um, and, and through just using the gift of teaching that you've given me, uh, and as we walk through these passages together, that you just clarify um, what, what you're doing through, through the story of redemption and give us um, that big, beautiful, wow moment as we stand back and we kind of look at the big picture. We're really good at honing in on a verse Um, But a lot of us, it's kind of a new thing to look at a theme throughout the whole big picture. And so um, I just pray you'd excite us and you'd help us to see what we need to see so that we can pull this thread through to the end and have a better understanding of what you have in store for us um, in eternity. That's why we're here. And so Lord, I pray that you would accomplish that. We love you so much. We thank you for your word. And um, we thank you that it is simple enough for a child to splash around in, and it is deep enough for the most brilliant theologian in the whole wide world to drown in <laughs> for the whole of their life. And so, God, we just thank you for um, both of those uh, aspects of your word. And we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to know, by raise of hands, who has been ziplining in this room? Like a real, true ziplining adventure? All right, a few of you, Amy, this table, anybody over here? Ziplining. Okay, that's my next question. Who hasn't been but like really wants to go ziplining? I am in that category. I have never been. Okay, but see, the way I am, um, I need it to be epic. I ain't going ziplining down the road. You know, like I need it to be like Costa Rica or I don't know. It needs to be epic zip lining or I don't want to go. Grand Canyon. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Now, how many, I want to know how many of you would ra- literally rather do anything else than go zip lining? Where are my fear of heights friends? Oh, oh we have quite a few. Okay. Like not your jam, not your thing. Totally understand. Well, in the opening of your homework this week, I told you we were going to harness ourselves to the zip line and and ride the theme of temple all the way through the Old Testament, and that is exactly what we are going to do together today, Um, except we're going to ride it a little further. We're going to go into the New Testament as well because I want us to end up at Revelation 21 and 22. So once again, we are literally starting at Genesis 1. We're going all the way to Revelation 22. And so when someone asks you, what did you do in Bible study today? You can say, I zip lined through the entire Bible. Yes, yes. Obviously, we are just going to be hitting the high points. And for those non zipliners you'll be happy to know there are no heights involved. All right. Um, now, before we jump off our first platform... I wanna do a little bit of a review of kind of where we have been. We are three weeks, our third week together. Um, and our very first week together, we walked through those um, diagrams or timelines that are in your workbook on page 10. We compared the traditional view of heaven. We've got kind of the password, you get the right password, you go up to heaven and there you are, right? Um, We've compared that view with what I am proposing Is the biblical view that, of course, is yet to be determined? I still have, including this week, I have seven more weeks to present the evidence to you. Um, If you are still feeling rather uneasy about what I'm calling the biblical view, well done. That is exactly where you should be at this point. Again, this is only our third week together, and we're pulling threads, we're just pulling threads, but we haven't. We haven't woven them all together yet. We still have a lot to explore. Now our second week together, which was last week, we walked through Genesis 1 and 2 doing our best to be good tourists, to read it through ancient eyes rather than through our modern, uh, very scientific-oriented eyes. And when we do that, we are able to see that God's plan for his creation, his plan A, is this. It's right there on your listening guide at the very top. God's plan A is an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple where God dwells with humans who act as priests in a special heaven and earth place called Eden, which God desires to expand throughout the whole world. Now, every phrase in that sentence is loaded. Um, And so if you missed last week, there were some technical difficulties with the recording. It will be up at some point. The first part is cut off, but enough of it is there. Um, But make sure when that comes up, you give that a listen if you missed it. Now, you'll notice that I underlined that very last part because it summarizes the mission that humanity was given from the very beginning. The whole point of being fruitful and multiplying, of ruling and subduing, was to fill the earth with Eden. And that brings us to this second paragraph on your listening guide. I knew you guys would be writing just furiously, so I decided to just like copy and paste it right right on there for you. Um, I'm just going to read this. Uh, from our study of Genesis 1 and 2, we began to see the deep connection between creation and temple. And This is why creation imagery is so prominent in both the tabernacle and the temple, and why scholars believe even the layout of the temple that was designed to reflect the cosmos, which we'll talk about that in a minute, It's also why there are so many literary parallels between the creation narrative and the tabernacle construction narrative in Exodus. I gave you two charts on pages 47 and 48 of your workbook that kind of outlined those connections, which I just thought was the coolest thing. I had never seen those parallels before. Um, It's also why the words work it and watch over it in Genesis 2.15 are repeated Side by side, in one other passage, it's Numbers 3, 8, and it describes the temple duties of the Levites. Furthermore, the deep connection between creation and temple explains why the new heaven and the new earth is described as a temple in Revelation 21 and 22. For John, and I could have listed a whole slew of other biblical authors there, for John, he's the one human author of Revelation, Um, new creation and a new temple went hand in hand. They're they're practically synonyms. And he did not come up with this on his own. He is building on a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. And that is the theme that we are going to hit the treetops of. We're going to hit the treetops of it together this morning. You did a little bit of it in your homework. So you, if you did that, you're kind of primed and ready. We're going to go a little bit deeper together and a little bit further together today. Um, I mentioned how the um, layout of the tabernacle and the temple reflects the, the, the created cosmos. And you'll see that in this little diagram that I added there for you. Um, so if you, if you enter the gate... It's just at the bottom there. You 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 go into the outer courtyard, um, and that was that was accessible um, to to most who were in not in an impure state, right? So you go into the outer courtyard, but then the the holy place was the second the second level, all right? Um, and you, not just anybody could go into there. And of course, of course, the most holy place, which is also called the holy of holies, all right? So only the high priest could go in there, and it was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when he went in there, it was so full of smoke, there's no way he could have really seen anything anyway. So it was like very, very um, important, important place. Now, there's a little quote on the side by a scholar named G.K. Beale. I think the G stands for George. I could be wrong. Um, he has written, <laughs> he's written like a mammoth commentary on the book of Revelation and then there's another commentary he's written called Revelation, a shorter commentary, and it's like 600 pages, which it cracks me up. I'm like, this is shorter, okay. Um, but he has written this, this book called The Temple and the Church's Mission. It is highly technical, you guys. Unless you're like, love to nerd out like I do, I would not recommend buying this book. I just wanted to point it out because this was like, I'm relying heavily on his work. I mean, he has, there's a lot of people that write on the temple theme, but he has, like, put it all in one place, and so this is where um, I have gotten, a, I know some of you are like, how do you know this? Well, I do a lot of reading and research. I don't just know things, like, I, I depend on, on the writings like this, um, and I love to trudge through books like this. A lot of you do not love to trudge through books like so I'm, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to pull some stuff out then give it to you. All right. So I just want you to know, Beal, I am relying heavily on him. But here's a quote from him on the side of this little tabernacle drawing. He said, Israel's temple, like the tabernacle, was composed of three main parts, each of which symbolized a major part of the cosmos. And if you look at Genesis 1, there's a three-part division. There's the sky and the earth and the sea, right? So it's divided into three parts. Well, the tabernacle is as well. So the outer court represented the habitable world where humanity dwelt. The holy place was emblematic of the visible heavens and its light sources. So you have the candlesticks there. Um, The holy of holies symbolized the invisible dimension of the cosmos where God and his heavenly hosts dwelt. So you have that three-part division. Again, the tabernacle itself and the way it's divided is reflecting creation, um, there's also a little word there about the Holy of Holies that I think is important just to kind of file away. Um, the sculpted cherubim around the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies and the figures of the cherubim woven into the curtains that guards the Holy of Holies reflects the real cherubim in heaven who presently stand guard around God's throne. So there's some some heavenly realities that are being reflected here in this earthly tabernacle. And then this is something that I know I've heard before, but I never really thought it through. Um, But the ark itself was understood to be the footstool of God's throne, right? So we we had that diagram of the Hebrew conception of the cosmos last, um, last week. And so you have the firmament, which is like the sky dome. And above that, Hebrew poetry will depict God's throne as above the firmament. It's way up there. And so I just love this idea of the ark being the footstool. Like the Holy of Holies cannot contain the presence of God. the, The way they saw it, it's like God's presence was above the whole earth, but like he touched down onto earth through the Holy of Holies. And that ark was just like, he's just resting his feet on it. And this kind of explains why in Isaiah, Isaiah's temple vision, what part of God does he see? sees the hem of his robe, right? And that's just a perfect correlation between the footstool, Ark of the Covenant, Isaiah sees the hem of God's robe. And I just thought that was kind of a a neat, helpful thing. And you'll see references to God's footstool as you're reading along in scripture, and that might be helpful for you in the future. All right, turn your guide over and don't be scared. We are not reading all of these passages, I promise you. It kind of looks like a fun game board to me. Anyway, this is our zip lining map right here. These are kind of the places that we are going, the platforms that we're gonna land on as we go through scripture. Are you guys ready to harness in and go? Yeah. All right, Genesis 1, God creates a cosmic temple. This is what that seventh-day rest is all about. For the original audience, went without saying that God's rested in temples. That's what a temple is for. So the act of resting on day seven, that's what it's conveying. Now, it wasn't resting like we think of resting. I think of resting as like Netflix and chill, right? I like take a nap. That's resting. That's resting to me. Uh, Resting in this context was one and the same with ruling. All right. Here's a quote from Beale: um, God's rest, both at the conclusion of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and later in Israel's temple, indicates not merely inactivity, but that he had demonstrated his sovereignty over the forces of chaos. That was done, right? And now he's ready to sit on his throne, right? He has assumed the position of kingly rest, further revealing his sovereign power. So that's the kind of resting that is envisioned there, all right? So that is Genesis 1 we've got a cosmic temple and we spent a lot of time there last week so we're going to zip on over to genesis chapter 2 now in genesis chapter 2 we go from this cosmic perspective of things to a terrestrial like earthy earthbound perspective of things in genesis 2 god plants a gardener a garden so another shout out to the gardeners in the room you're very godly all right so god plants a garden He moves into that garden. We see him walking in the garden in the cool of the day, right? And and that's where he dwells with humanity. Now, in terms of our kind of cosmic temple image, the garden is the Holy of Holies. That's where God has decided to take up residence. And what we see in Genesis 2 is that heaven and earth, right, God's space, and human space, while distinct and different, they were made for each other. They were designed to connect. They were designed to overlap. I honestly think that's why in Revelation 21 and 22, he sees the new heaven and the new earth like a bride, right? There's a union of heaven and earth about to happen, just as it was intended. From the very beginning, they were made for each other. Um, This is why Adam was called to work and keep the garden. It's also why he was called to expand the garden so that God's presence wouldn't just stay contained in that one little spot called Eden, but that uh, human space and God's space would continue to overlap more and more. Unfortunately, um, Adam doesn't do the best job, apparently, of working and keeping the garden because in Genesis 3, a force of evil in the form of a serpent gains access to the garden. Now, I, there's different views on this, but I personally think had Adam been there on the lookout with a priestly shovel, things might have gone a little bit differently, all right? Long story short, humanity rebels against God, is exiled from the garden, and for the very first time since mankind was created, we see a rupture, a a, a disconnect between God's space and human space. So if you think in terms of a Venn diagram, which, if you've noticed, that's what's going on in the cover of the study, So you think in terms of a Venn diagram, in the beginning, there was a a gorgeous overlap of the two circles, one circle being God's space, the other circle being human space. That overlap, if we were to label that overlap, we would call it Eden. It's the garden in Eden. The first humans, uh, with their royal and priestly status, were commissioned to make that overlap bigger and bigger and bigger. So we are pushing God's space and human space together further and further and further so that this spot in the middle grows. That was the original creation mandate that God gave to Adam. But Genesis chapter 3, the opposite happens, and the two circles begin to grow further and further apart. So that by Genesis 6 things are so bad. These are clicking. I'm going to take them off. All right. You saw I was wearing cute earrings, but they're clicking and driving me crazy. So things are so bad that God sends a flood. All right. Um, Of course, even, even in that, his grace is on full display through his preservation of Noah's family. All right. So you guys tracking with me? Okay fast forward to Genesis 11 and we are fast forwarding through some very dramatic things all right but I want to I want to land a little bit in Genesis 11 because something really really interesting happens there so go ahead and turn with me I'm actually going to read a little bit of this all right so Genesis chapter 11 All right so we're going to like go back to elementary bible class who knows what happens in Genesis chapter 11? Anybody? We can Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. And this, by the way, is our origin story for Babylon, which um, looms large in, in the biblical story. All right, so we are in Genesis 11. I'm going to pick up in verse 1. It says, The whole earth, had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. All right, I want to point out a few things. First, notice that humans had utterly rebelled against God's command to fill the earth. That command implicit in that is that they needed to spread out. In fact, when God covenants with Noah... He repeats the creation mandate, and he literally says, word for word, "Be fruitful and multiply and spread out over the earth and multiply on it." That's Genesis 9:7. They had been told verbatim, "Spread out and multiply." Well, in Genesis 11, humans are decisively rebelling against that command. So that's the first thing to notice. They are all trying to stay in one place. Okay. Second thing to notice for our purposes today, there's a bajillion things you can notice in this passage. Second thing is the tower. Now, we think just tower. I just think like Leaning Tower of Pisa. I don't know why that's always what comes to my mind. But the tower spoken of here was it would be a, a ziggurat temple, a large step pyramid with a, a shrine on top. Uh, quoting again from Beale's book here, he says, such cultic towers were typical of the time In ancient Mesopotamia, their purpose was to serve as a gateway between heaven and earth, whereby the gods could come down. All right, so we're like, okay, well, God seems pretty cool with the temples. What's the big deal? Why is this such a problem? Well, this temple really didn't involve Yahweh, did it? It wasn't his idea. It wasn't for his glory, right? They're like, we want to make a name for ourselves. And it completely subverted God's intention for humans to spread out and mediate the goodness and beauty of Eden to the rest of the world. So because of that, God forces them to do what they should have already done on their own by confusing their language and then scattering them throughout the earth. And that's why in Exodus 10... It's not chronologically ordered, but in Exodus 10, you have that table of nations. It's kind of showing where they all where they all went. All right? I want you to keep that in mind, tuck it away in your short-term memory bank because we are going to pull on this Babel thread a little bit later. Okay? All right. Everybody tracking okay? Okay. Now it's here at Genesis 11 that God shifts from focusing on all the peoples of the earth to one family, all right? One family, Israel, through whom he will ultimately reclaim all those nations that he has scattered and basically disowned because of their rebellion, all right? So this is a big plot twist, you guys, big plot twist in the storyline of the Bible. And that brings us to the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12. This is where God calls Abraham. And I just wanna read real quick what God says to Abraham because I think it's gonna connect some dots for you. All right, Genesis 12, verse one. The Lord God said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you I will make your name great, and I and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All right, now it's not a direct quote, but do you see the hints of Genesis 1:28, that creation mandate that God gave to Adam? and Eve. Do you see hints of that here? Yeah. God is saying, now to Adam, he said, you be fruitful and multiply. Here, God is saying to Abram, I'm going to make you fruitful. (laughs) I'm going to make you multiply, which is really cool because Adam was way old and his wife was barren. So this is a pretty cool thing that God's saying here. And if if God had just said, be fruitful and multiply, Abram would have been like, um, (laughs) God's saying, I'm going to make you fruitful, and multiply. And what is the whole point? Why? So that through his descendants, the whole earth, the whole world would be blessed. So God has now commissioned Abraham um, and his descendants to be the means by which the goodness and beauty of Eden goes out to the rest of the world. So Abram's kind of, not kind of, he is part of the plan to begin to reverse the effects of what um, Adam, Adam's sin had, had caused. All right, so that's what's going on in Genesis 12. It's not on our little game board, but it's such a huge pivot point in the storyline. If you don't understand Genesis 12, the, the biblical story just doesn't, it doesn't roll through very well. All right, any questions at this point? All right, time to zip on over. Oh, it's a little bit of a, a little longer line. We're going to Genesis 28. Go ahead and turn there with me, because I'm going to actually read a portion of this one too. I think this is becoming one of my favorite little scenes in the Old Testament. All right, if you were raised in church, this is a familiar story to you, um, Verse 10 of Genesis 28 says, Jacob, now Jacob was Abraham's grandson. So it was Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. So Jacob left Beersheba. He went toward Haran and he reached a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed a stairway, was set on the ground with its top reaching to the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. And the Lord was standing there beside him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. So lots of offspring. And you will spread out toward the west and the east and the north and the south, right? So multiply, right? And then fill, all right? So we see again the echoes of Genesis one twenty-eight, 28. Um, verse 15, look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and he set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and he named the place Bethel, which means house of God, though previously the city was named Luz or Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, if I return safely to my father's family, so in other words, if I don't die, (laughs) then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you gave me. All right, let's take a really brief inventory of what we have here. We have the presence of Yahweh, all right? We have a direct connection point between heaven and earth. We've got a hot spot of God's glory, these steps, right? In fact, uh, we have angels going up and down on this connection point, so the message is very clear what this is. Jacob names the place House of God," and then he builds a stone marker which would serve as a commemorative shrine of this appearance, this theophany that he has experienced so God has in no it's, it's very clear God has come down to meet with Jacob in little mini temple out in the middle of nowhere, right? This whole scene. Keep it in your mind because it's going to come into play again, just like Babel. It's going to come into play a little later. All right. Are we good on Genesis 28? All right. Harness. We're going to zip now to Exodus 19. All right. We're once again... God comes down. This time, a lot more people see it. All right, so this is where, where, where God comes to Mount Sinai, another really important um, part of the biblical story. All right, so like in Genesis 28, you are not going to find the word temple in Exodus 19 uh, and the description of Sinai, but all the clues are there. And we're just going to take a look at a few verses all right, Exodus 19, look at verse 9. It says, the Lord said to Moses, all right, and just, I'm sorry, I didn't set the stage. The people are, like, gathered around this mountain. They have finally come to this mountain. Uh, God has covenanted with them. They're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and they're like, yeah, you know. And so um, now God is, is going to come down and, like, show up, right? And they're, they're all going to see it, and it's super scary. Look at this. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and they will always believe you. Verse 10, the Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. So that's consecration to be a big temple thing, all right? They must wash their clothes and be prepared on the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. Skip down to verse 18. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke. Why? Because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount sinai at the top of the mountain. All right. So I just read a little snippets but this whole scene is taking place on a mountain which is where temples were built in the ancient near east. In fact, Ezekiel describes Eden as the holy mountain of God in Ezekiel 28. Interesting. All right, so there's smoke and fire The mountain violently shakes. All of this is indicating that Yahweh is in the house. Like, he is there. He has showed up. There is no mistaking. There is no mistaking. It's not a foggy day. It is like God has come down on this mountain. And just like the temple was divided in three parts, Sinai is seen as divided into three parts. Skip over to chapter 24 verse 1. This is really clear here. 24, verse 1. It says, then uh, he said to Moses, go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nahab, and Abihu, and the 70 of Israel's elders, and bow and worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord, but the others, the rest of the people are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. So you have this three-part division. You have the people that are to stay down around the mountain, and then you have the priests and the 70 elders that are allowed to go a little bit further. That's like the holy place. And then you've got Moses, who alone is able to go all the way up, and that's like the holy of holies. All right, so you have that three-part division. So what we are seeing here um, is definitely pointing to something that's about to come. And that would be the tabernacle and the temple. Now, what important things does God communicate to Moses on this mountain? Anybody know? Ten commandments. And then there's all those other laws that flow from those. He communicates all of those. And he gives Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle. So he's on this, like, mountain temple thing. And he's going to give him the plans for a more permanent even though it's a mobile, it's a mobile temple. (laughs) Um, But he's going to give him the plans for the tabernacle, which is the next temple image we see in the biblical narrative. Now, if you have ever read through the book of Exodus, you are painfully aware of how um, much of it is devoted to the tabernacle. I mean, you're rocking through like the plagues and like set free and then Want, want. Like, it's kind of like, wow, it's like a lot of laws and a lot of tabernacle lingo. Um, it's very detailed. There's a lot of repetition. It is very tedious to read. Well done if you have made it all the way through. Now, if there's one thing you take away from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's that the tabernacle is a really really big deal. It's a really big deal. And I want to point you to just a few scriptures that show us why it's such a big deal. Take a look with me at Exodus 25 verse 8. This is kind of when God begins to give Moses the instructions. He says, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Dwell is a big temple word for God. So that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. Now the very first piece of furniture that is mentioned is the ark, which was the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. And look what God says about it in Exodus 25 verse 22. He says of the ark, he says, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, and I will speak to you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. Again, this holy of holies did not even come close to containing God's presence. He's way too big to be contained in a building, but this ark was where he rested his feet it was the intersection point between God's space and human space. And it was very significant, very, very special. Um, skip on over to Exodus 40. Let's take a look at when the whole thing's finished. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. All right, we got another, another cloud, another glory cloud. Exodus 34, or Exodus 40, verse 34. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Uh, Leviticus and the whole sacrificial system is going to take care of that problem (laughs) so that Moses can actually go in. Verse 36, the Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over, the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. Wow. So at this point in redemptive history, the God of all creation, who has kind of touched down, there's been... Hot spots of his glory here and there, but he is choosing to, to dwell, to, to move in, to dwell with humanity in the back room of a really, really special tent. And so for Moses and Israel, the circles of the Venn diagram are, are, are coming back together, and that little spot where they overlap, we would label the tabernacle. If you want to get real technical, the Holy of Holies right? Our zip lining adventure continues. And this is where I have a major typo, all right? We're going to zip on down to 2 Samuel 7. First Samuel 7 will make no sense at all, all right? We are zipping on to 2 Samuel 7. So if you want to go, we're actually just making a pit stop here because it's another pivot point that if we don't stop here, the next section is not going to make a whole lot of sense. All right, so 2 Samuel 7, I am going to start reading in verse 1. It's talking about King David here, Israel's most famous king. It says, when the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. And Nathan told the king, go and do all that's on your mind for the Lord is with you. (laughs) Well, I'm not reading anymore. I'm just giving you my little synopsis. All right, later that night, where the Lord comes to Nathan and tells him, "Um, actually, no, it is not okay for David to build the temple. So Nathan has to go back to David. He's like, my bad. God does not want you to build the house. He's actually going to build you a house. So it's kind of like bad news, but really good news, right? And by house, God meant dynasty. He's going to build an everlasting kingdom for David. All right, so let's pick up at verse 12 of chapter 7. And this is Nathan conveying God's word to David. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Skip down to verse 16. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Obviously, there's a repeated word there, forever. God is really hitting that home. This is called the Davidic Covenant. It has huge implications that we are going to look at in a few weeks when we get to the Gospels and the preaching of Jesus and we start to look at the kingdom of God. All right? What's important for us today is that David did have a son named Solomon, and he did, in fact, build God, a permanent temple in Jerusalem that replaced the portable tabernacle, as the hot spot of God's presence among the people. How are we doing? Are we doing okay? Everybody? Okay. That brings us to 1 Kings 8. All right, so we're zipping on. 1 Kings 8, and we are now, David is passed away. And now we are focusing on Solomon. He's got this amazing temple-building project so much is going on in 1 Kings chapter 8. I'm just going to read a few of the verses. I'm going to pick up in verse 10. And this is, if you, my Bible labels this, Solomon's dedication of the temple, right? So the temple is done, and now it's time to dedicate it to the Lord. Verse 10, when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering. They had to get out of there. It was so thick. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's huge. Verse 12, then Solomon said, the Lord said that he would, here's our temple word, dwell in total darkness. But I indeed built an exalted temple for you, a place of your dwelling forever. We're going to stop there. This is why Jerusalem, also called Mount Zion, can be confusing. It has different names. All right, Jerusalem or Mount Zion. This is why it becomes so important in the biblical storyline. It is both the location of the Davidic throne, which God said was going to last forever and ever and ever. It is also the um, location of, of God's throne. So David's throne is there, and God's throne is there. Uh, again, if we want to be technical, it's the footstool of God's throne, right? The, the Holy of Holies, this is where God is going to dwell. So it's the new hot spot of God's glory. It's the new place where God's space and human space overlap. So just we, we cannot, we cannot um, underestimate the significance um, and, and the sacredness of Jerusalem for the people of God, particularly those southern tribes, all right? this really, really, really important place on the map for them, which is why, as we continue on in our little game board here, we get to another, another skull. You like how I made, my, my sons love the skulls, right? So put that in there for them. Uh, This is why the Babylonian invasion and destruction of Jerusalem is so devastating, so devastating. If you were with me in our Isaiah study, we walked through that Um, because it it signaled God's departure from Israel as a result of their sin. He abandons Jerusalem. Uh, Ezekiel 9 through 11 vividly describes the glory of God departing. It leaves. He moves out. He moves out of the temple. And this is also why the good news heralded in Isaiah 40 to the exiles who had been carried off to Babylon is that Yahweh is coming back. He's coming back. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaim peace, who bring good news, who proclaim salvation who says to Zion, here's the good news, here's the gospel according to Isaiah, your God reigns. In other words, plan A is still on. The temple is gone. The Davidic dynasty appears to be gone. God's glory has moved out. Oh, but he's coming back. And he still reigns. And in 539 B.C., Cyrus conquers Babylon. He allows the exiled Judeans to return to Jerusalem. If you've read Ezra or Nehemiah, Haggai, um, Zechariah, and Malachi are also prophesying during this time. Um, They were able to come back, and uh, they lived happily ever after. Is that what happened? No! No! No, it's like the biggest wah-wah of Scripture, all right? It really is. Because, yeah, the, the southern tribes were able to return to Jerusalem. All the northern tribes still scattered, all right? And the second temple period falls woefully short of the prophetic hope that you're about to dig into next week. The prophets saw some things happening in the future, and they weren't happening. They weren't happening in that sem- second temple so at the end of the Old Testament, and through the intertestamental period, which is about 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, there is a sense that something is missing. Most notably, the glory. The glory is missing, and it does not, it does not fill that second temple like it did the first all right, here's the best zip, zip line movement of all. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1. We could see this in any of the Gospels, but John just presents it so clearly. John chapter 1, I'm going to pick up a reading in verse 4. So I hope that we are sitting in the sadness of the, the, the lack of glory in the second temple period. It's just not there like it used to be there. And everything the prophets have prophesied and promised about the age to come, it's just not, it's just not happened. And then we get to John chapter 1, verse 14. The word, who of course is Jesus, became flesh and, there's our temple word, dwelt among us literally translated tabernacled he tabernacled among us we observed his what glory (gasps) i gotta stop she gets too excited we observed his glory the glory of the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth there's glory again you guys the sun has tabernacled. We have seen his glory now skip down. It gets, it gets even cooler. All right, John chapter 1, verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter, so Jesus is going to start gathering some of his disciples. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. So he's getting it. This is the one. This is the glory, right? Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael's the best. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come on, right? Come and see, Philip answered. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Oh, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus says, Before Philip called you when you were under that fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Oh, Rabbi, Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. I loved how John wastes no time going to give us all these titles. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Oh, Nathaniel, you are going to see greater things than this. And then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder, on a stairs? Oh no. On the Son of Man. Wow. Genesis 28. Except the stairway connecting heaven and earth. The connection point is Jesus himself. One more stop in John John chapter 2, verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The temple. The second temple was rebuilt there. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned their tables. And he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign are you going to show us for doing these things? Who gives you the right to come in here and turn over all these tables? Basically what they were saying. And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. There's Jesus sounding crazy again, right? Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it up in three days. And then John gives us this little commentary here. John likes to turn to the reader and say, this is what was going on, right? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his what? His body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement That Jesus made. This is so big. This is so big. No longer is is Yahweh the inhabiting God in a back room of a sacred building. He is the incarnate God in a body that has landed on earth and is doing his ministry. Interestingly enough, right here, in the temple. Jesus is the new heaven and earth space. He is the new hot spot of God's glory. He is the new temple. And in John chapter 20, we're not going to read it, but when, when the resurrected Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, where is she? In a garden? She is in a garden, and right after that, in John 20, Jesus is with his disciples, and you know what he does? He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he commissions them to go out. Are we not seeing Genesis 1 and 2? John is painting a picture of new creation. He's taking his readers all the way back to the beginning, which, duh, that's how he starts his whole gospel, right? In the beginning, the word, right? (laughs) So he's already clued us in. I'm going to be taking you back to Genesis a lot, but he takes us all the way back to the beginning, shows us that the new temple and new creation go hand in hand, and what happens next is so cool. It's so cool. Turn to uh, Acts chapter 2. I don't know what I'm going to do on Wednesday night, because I don't have this much time on Wednesday night. We're going to have to figure it out. I don't know. All right, Acts chapter 2. All right, this is like, I have never spoken in tongues, but if I do, it's going to happen right here. <laughs> Appropriately, as I'm teaching Acts chapter 2. No, this is just like really, really exciting, okay? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, oh, just to give you context, so Jesus has ascended, right? He's gone back to the Father. All right, still, still in a body. He's still Jesus Christ, right? Um, he has ascended. We'll talk about the significance of his ascension at some point. All right, now, verse 1, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, the, the, the followers of Jesus. Suddenly, a cl- oh, not just the follower, like, like there was a, a group, right, a, a big group, and suddenly a sound like that of a violent, rushing wind that came from heaven, it filled the whole house where they were staying, and they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There's different languages, right? And now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language and they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites? He goes on to list all these different nations. So much is going on here. I'm going to point out two things and then we're going to land the plane. First... Let's talk about that violent rushing wind from heaven and the flames of fire that have rested on them. This is supposed to call to mind the Old Testament theophanies, right? Theophany is just simply a manifestation of God in the Bible that is tangible to human senses. You can see it or feel it. You can hear it, all right? What happens on Mount Sinai is an example of a theophany. Another example is what happens at the dedication of Solomon's temple. You can just jot this down. We don't have time to read it. But in 2 Chronicles 7, 1-3, great emphasis is put on how fire descends from heaven upon the dedication of the temple. And we can be certain that Luke would want us to have that in our minds as we read about the tongues of fire descending and resting on the people in Acts chapter 2. The second thing I want to point out is what happens with the languages and this list of nations that we have in verses 9 through 11. This is clearly, without any doubt, being presented as a reversal of what happened at Babel. This is a reversal of Babel. I want to read you um, a little section of Beale's book. It says, Why does Luke want readers to see the link to Genesis 10 and 11? Babel's sin of uniting and consequent judgment of confused languages and of the people being scattered throughout the earth is reversed at Pentecost. God causes representatives from the same scattered nations to unite in Jerusalem, in order that they might receive the blessing of understanding different languages as if all these languages were one. The purpose of having a unified understanding is to demonstrate the power of the eschatological. We're not afraid of that word anymore, are we? Eschatological, eschatology just means end times, happened in the age to come, right? Eschatological spirit. In attesting to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to the heavenly throne to reign as cosmic king. Under the kingship of Jesus and through the power of his spirit, the representatives of these nations were to scatter again. And subdue the powers of evil by filling the earth with God's presence, just as ministry, the smaller band of 70 witnesses, had begun to do during his earthly ministry. The precise manner by which they were to do this was by witnessing through the power of the Spirit and the word indeed on behalf of Jesus Christ. The events of Pentecost likely took place in Jerusalem, which is no accident. Wow. You guys, like, do we need to see all this stuff to, to, to get? No, we don't. We don't have to see any of this stuff. But man, what the biblical authors are doing here and what they're weaving together for us, this glorious grand tapestry is just so incredible. So in Genesis 11, the people were building a temple in defiance of the commission to spread the beauty and goodness of Eden throughout the world. But in Acts 2, the people are becoming a temple and fulfillment of the commission to spread the beauty and goodness of Eden throughout the world. And, of course, Peter and Paul developed this theme of the church as a new temple, um, and we're going to take a look at that in a few weeks. And that brings us to our final destination. I'm not going to read much of this, but I told you we'd end here. We have. Not too late. All right, Revelation chapter 21. Do you want to turn there? Revelation 21. Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling. There's that temple word. God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and he will, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God, and he's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Now skip down to verse 22. John writes this. He says, you know, I did not see a temple in it. What? Wait, I thought you called it the New Jerusalem. No, no, no. But I didn't see a temple in it. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. The glory's back. So full, in fact, that we don't even need luminaries. (laughs) Its lamp is the land, is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That Abrahamic covenant. It's come full circle, right? Its gates will never close by day. It will never be night there. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, this is puzzling to so many scholars. Well, how is it? It's the new heaven and the new earth, or is it a temple? Is it, is it the new heaven, the new earth, the sea? It's both. It's both because it took us this long. But we saw that to the biblical authors, new creation and new temple. They're practically synonymous. They go together. Why is there no temple in the new heaven and the new earth? That's because plan A is complete. The Bible ends with an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple where God dwells with humans who act as priests in a special heaven and earth place called the New Jerusalem because the beauty and goodness of Eden has been expanded to fill the whole world. This is the Bible's epic full circle moment. So, so beautiful. In a few weeks, we are going to get into what this means for us practically as we are the present temple of God, awaiting the future temple of God. But I want you to start thinking about it. So I'm going to throw out some questions, and I just want you to start, just start marinating on these questions. I think it's week eight. We talk about the church and the kingdom of God. We're really going to hit these heavy but just begin thinking this a couple some questions what difference should it make that we are the means by which new creation realities have begun to permeate the world like we we are the means by which new creation is invading the old creation right now to put it another way what difference should it make that we as the church, Big C Church, Church Universal, not just this church, although that would certainly be a part of it, what difference should it make that we, the church, are the hotspot of God's glory and presence in this age? Tag, you're it. (laughs) Where does God dwell now? He dwells in us. We are the living temple of God. What difference should that make? And then finally, again, these are all kind of the same, just worded differently. What difference should it make that we are the place on the Venn diagram where heaven and earth overlap? See those two circles coming together? What do we label that overlap point? Well, we can put April's name on it. (laughs) We can put your name on it. We can put all believers all over the world. We are the place where heaven and earth overlap. What difference should that make as we go out into the world, into our communities? Let that marinate. All right? Any questions before I close this in prayer? Um again, this is hard because it's new. All right. If you didn't get all of that, you are not dumb. You are not in the wrong place. You are studying an ancient text, and you just went through the whole Bible. All right? So if you're feeling a little sweaty, you, you got a sweaty brain, get it some hydration. Go watch something dumb later. Give it a break. All right? And again, we're pulling threads. We're going to come back to this. We're pulling threads through. It's taking us a whole 10 weeks. Give yourself grace, all right? But if you have questions, please ask them. We can set up a phone call. We can set up a lunch date. We can do Zoom. We can email back and forth. Let me know. Do not suffer in silence, all right? All right, if there's no questions, I'll close this in prayer. We're good? Okay, yes. Uh, that's a great question. What I mean is the whole shebang. So we have God's space um, for the biblical, the, the the ancient Hebrew. It would have been that like drawing I gave you last week, right? So you had like under the earth, and you have the earth, and you have the sea, and you have the skies. Of course, they didn't know about outer space, right? We do that in our sense of cosmos. It would include the outer space it would include whatever's beyond outer space, which is usually in our conception, if we were to poetically depict where God is, in our poetry, it would probably be above outer space, right? Just like for the Hebrew, they would depict it as above the firmament. Like it's, it's in a different space-time continuum, a different realm that we, we don't have access to at this point. Um, and so when I say cosmos, I mean like, Everything, everything and beyond, just God's whole, whole world. So it would include um, his space, our space, everything, everything in between. That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Anybody else? All right. I'll close in prayer. Father, uh, we thank you so much for just these beautiful um, themes that we get to trace throughout your word I thank you for scholars like um, Dr. Beal and so many others who have devoted their entire lives to studying this stuff um, and helping the church um, see it and understand it. Um, and Lord, we admit it's going to take us a bunch more times through this to, to, to really um, maybe wrap our brains really around it. But I thank you for what you've started today today. Um, in, in, in just helping us to sort of um, tie some things together. Um, and it's exciting. It's exciting to see the various pieces of your word that maybe we've kind of thought of as disconnected. They're very much not. There is one big, beautiful, epic, life-changing, anxiety-crushing, world-shaping story that you are telling from Genesis to Revelation, and what a joy and a privilege it is. However feebly we do it, it is a privilege to, to learn and to grow in our knowledge of what you have revealed. And so we just thank you for uh, what, what you're doing. And God, we thank you for Jesus, this human, divine Savior that came here and dwelt among us, that he might redeem us from the curse of sin and usher in the new creation that we long for. And we pray that we would be just beautiful reflections of new creation realities in our lives even now. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.